I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Christopher J. Coyne, F.A. Harper, Professor of Economics at George Mason University, joins us to discuss his book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. In this conversation, Christopher and I discuss the nature of his critique of U.S. foreign policy reflecting on the anniversary of the Iraq War, the mechanized terror of drone warfare, the war on drugs, and much, much more. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it with Christopher J. Coyne, author of In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with, Christopher J. Coyne, author of In Search of Monsters to Destroy. This is a fascinating book, subtitled The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So, uh, Christopher, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background in I would say criticizing the national security state or uh, what some people would refer to as the American empire. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I I have an interesting path. I'm I'm an economist by training and I'm a member of the Department of Economics at at George Mason University. So so my both my training and my professional life is teaching uh, and studying economics. Uh, And uh, of course, this is a topic that oftentimes falls under the purview of political science and international relations and public policy. But my my personal interest in this, in addition to having a a long interest in foreign policy issues, 
uh, was somewhat personal, which is um, I, I grew up in New York City uh, or right outside New York City. I went to school in New York City and I worked in finance for two years after I graduated undergraduate. And so I would uh, I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I would take the path train from Hoboken, New Jersey into the World Trade Center and then walk down to the offices uh, on Wall Street. And I started in graduate school at George Mason in Fairfax, Virginia in uh, August of 2001. So my third week of graduate school was the September 11th attacks. Uh, in addition to the World Trade Centers getting hit, of course, the, the Pentagon was hit, which is uh, about 15 miles from George Mason University. And right after that, of course, the US government uh, invades and occupies Afghanistan and then Iraq. And then of course we get the war on terror. So I, I was personally interested in this just because I'd come from New York City uh, lived right around the World Trade Centers and 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 walked through them on a daily basis for several years, and uh, I I was quite troubled both by the the way the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq were being discussed and framed by U.S. policymakers and media pundits and political pundits, uh, and that turned into my dissertation. My dissertation was on the political economy of nation building, the ability to export democratic institutions, and then. I've been working on it ever since, um, and so it's it's a, a topic that I, I'm very passionate about. I care about, and uh, I enjoy researching because of its implications for human welfare, both domestically and internationally. So we're coming up against the anniversary of the Bush era invasion of Iraq. Uh, maybe you could give your own reflections on that, because. You know, I saw a few days ago, or maybe it was even just yesterday, uh, a piece in The Atlantic by uh, David Frum, the, the speechwriter who famously coined the term axis of evil for George W. Bush. And uh, his little reflection on uh, the Iraq war was, well, you know, it was a mistake, but think about what could have happened if we didn't go in. What what else could have happened? There could have been worse things. And, uh, you know, I felt like it was... Uh, condescending to those of us who really had to struggle uh, with, you know, the fallout of Iraq. I knew a lot of soldiers from uh, Greenville, PA, because I, I was from Pittsburgh, that, you know, came back from the war uh, messed up. You know, they had issues. Um, and it, it hit people a lot, the war. So can you give a perspective on uh, the Iraq war that maybe differs a little bit from this sort of David Frum style take on it? <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. I, 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 saw that piece and uh you know it, it's it's very condescending it's very arrogant uh and and it lacks a fundamental lack of 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 self-awareness and humility um even in the face of 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 extremely strong evidence to the contrary and you know the the very view of kind of treating war which is is really the worst thing that human beings can do to other human beings as some kind of plaything. Uh, as some kind of just policy that you pass and it, you know, oh, things could have been worse. This, uh, These are human beings, uh, as you pointed out uh, in, in reflecting on the soldiers that you know. Uh, these are, are real people whose lives are deeply affected, oftentimes in horrible ways, uh, whether that is physical, whether it's mental, uh, whether it's the effect on their family and friends when when if they are lucky enough to return home. And then the, there's, the the of course, the people abroad. The people that are inter inter intervened upon. A, a contrast to From is Max Boot, who who recently wrote a, a piece in Foreign Affairs where at least he has some humility, and he says, "Yeah, Look, that was I, where he was saying I was wrong about my yes, neoconservatism." Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I was 
I, I was uh, overly confident in the ability to export democratic institutions. I was overly confident in the ability of the U.S. government to simply walk into another country and kind of drop down a new government, a new economic and political institutions. Uh, and but even there, uh, you know, there's no self-reflection on the actual apparatus itself. Um, on the very nature of U.S. foreign policy, on the nature of the national security state or America as an empire. And one of the things I'm hoping to do in this book is to point out the fund fundamental nature of the apparatus itself. And, and I think that's important both in and of itself, but I think it's important for engaging people across the ideological continuum, um, because this isn't a, a, a left-right issue. It's, a, it's an issue about the structure of government about the scale and scope of government and what government is able to do, but also what we want it to do as, as citizens that live under that government. So I know you sort of come from, uh, I would say, a more libertarian perspective, probably. Uh, you know, you wrote this book. It got released by the Independent Institute, uh, who are very libertarian leaning. Uh, but what would you say to progressives or leftists uh, that are concerned about uh, various issues, domestic and uh, with regards to foreign policy. What What is your sort of pitch to them for why they should be thinking about this issue of the national security state apparatus? Sure. Well, well um, you know, interestingly, when I talk about issues of foreign policy and empire, uh, oftentimes people that are are, are self-defined as more left-leaning, at least historically, have been quite sympathetic. Um, and oftentimes those who are more right-leaning um, have been quite critical and harsh of, of the arguments I've made. Um, which is if I was talking economic issues, uh, just to provide a contrast, it might be the reverse of that. So it's been an interesting experience. But I, I think I, I would I would point this out. For those who are concerned with the well-being of all human beings, but especially the marginalized, uh, the, the the most vulnerable in society, war is 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 a terrible set of policies. It imposes significant costs on the most vulnerable abroad and at home. It is extremely costly in monetary terms, uh, and those costs oftentimes fall on the most vulnerable. So the wealthier people in society are able to uh, shield themselves from those costs. Um, those who who live abroad and who are marginalized have, have very little recourse to avoid the, the physical and mental uh, and monetary costs of war. But the other thing I would point out is that those who are left-leaning uh, oftentimes, I realize this is a broad claim, but I think it's I'm okay making it, are often quite concerned about economic power, corporate power, and entanglements between um, large corporations and government. And you know, I have this chapter in the book where I refer to the the war industry as peak cronyism. It is it is the essence of uh, 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 crony capitalism. You have these very large, defense firms, as well as a lot of small contractors as well, who are deeply entangled with the U.S. government. Uh, and and they're, they, they are the lifeblood, in some sense, of the war-making machinery, but the government is their lifeblood because they, they depend on government for revenues. Uh, and to the extent that people are concerned about that, and again, the costs of that oftentimes fall on, on the most vulnerable domestically, uh, that's a real concern and a real reason to be skeptical of, of the war-making uh, uh, powers of government and the war-making machinery that fall under the purview of the American national security state. Now, you mentioned trying to sell this to the right at times, and I'm starting to see 
more and more articles uh, arguing, oh, you know, the, the right wing is the new uh, beating heart of the anti-war movement. And I, I kind of disagree with those takes when I see them in the media, because, I mean, we've recently had uh, Republicans uh, of note saying, you know, oh, we may have to go to war with Mexico. Uh, a lot of Republicans are still supportive of things like uh, Guantanamo Bay and the, you know, enhanced interrogation, or I would say torture that has gone on there. Uh, so I'm not sure that the Republican Party has entirely changed its views on war. In a lot of ways, I think we have a uh, bipartisan war party, as my friend Kelly Vlahos would, uh, was, would put it. Uh, so how would you address the right wing when talking about issues of uh, the war industry and the war state? Sure. Yeah. And, and I've been noticing the same thing. I think you're, you're spot on. So I just saw, I think it was Tom Cotton interviewed the other day and he was advocating military intervention in Mexico against the war on drugs. And he said, look, we've done this before. We have Panama. So there's precedent for this. And uh, this is harming Americans. So in the name of national security and national interest, we have the right to intervene. I was going to uh, say also, there's a lot of um, hawkishness about China as well on the right. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. So the, I, I, I share your views on this, which is I think that people on both sides, uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, the, the discussion is is not one of kind of extremes, but marginal steps. And it's polit was politically convenient at the time. So they'll point out certain things, you know, we shouldn't fund Ukraine, but we need to fight China or Mexico or whatever it is. So it's not a wholesale critique of the apparatus itself or the methods that are associated with that apparatus, but of whatever their flavor of the week is. That's kind of how I how I view it. Um, in terms of how I would engage those who are more right-leaning, I, I would say this. People on the right tend to be highly skeptical of centralized government power. They tend to be highly skeptical of centralized government power for, for two reasons. Well, well, many, but I'll highlight two. One is, is in terms of effectiveness. And so, so they'll say, look, when you concentrate a lot of power in a monocentric or single decision-making unit, government's just not as effective. So you get you know education at the provided by the national level is not as effective at the state level or the local level, or so it goes. Uh, there's pushback on healthcare oftentimes under the same logic. Uh, so let's stop there for a moment and think about the national security state. What is the national security state other th other than the most centralized national government program you can have? And so for the same reasons that right-leaning folks tend to be extremely skeptical of centralized government power, they should be highly skeptical of the national security state for that same reason. Uh, it's harder to find a more centralized government program than that. Uh, and uh, for all the talk of, and I think, misuse of the term socialism uh, when, when people refer to big government, uh, again, the military is the perfect example of that. The Pentagon uh, is the world's largest employer. Uh, uh, the number of uh, uh, private firms that are entangled with uh, uh, the, the the military sector is enormous. It, 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 so it undermines all the the arguments for the dynamism of markets and all that. After all, if the Pentagon is so effective, why don't we embrace that same logic for all other government programs? Uh, because it should it should apply. But on top of that, the other thing I should mention is that conservatives tend to be very uh, focused on things like family on traditional values and so on. And war making tends to erode and destroy those things. Uh, when you take away family members to send them abroad, even if they come back, even if we assume the best case and they come back completely unharmed physically or mentally, 
they are still taken away from their families for months, if not years. That has real effects. They are taken away from their communities. They are pulled out of local civil society because they are sent abroad. And then those that are harmed, they are permanently harmed and they permanently affect members of their community. And so it has a corrosive effect on the very things that conservatives purport to want to uh, uphold and extend and enforce through time. And so those are the kind of things I would emphasize, in addition, of course, to the fiscal aspect, which is though, to the extent conservatives are concerned about reducing government spending, uh, war making is uh, a situation where, of course, government purse strings uh, are, are thrown open and money uh, is, is, is viewed as no object whatsoever. When we talk about a country like the U.S. that goes to war abroad, uh, and as you as you quote uh, John Quincy Adams, "In search of monsters to destroy," uh, what's the connection between military adventurism abroad and restriction? I would say of liberties at home, um, because I think there is a connection there. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a connection. I think that connection is. Twofold. One I'll call direct effects, and then the other I'll call indirect effects for, for the sake of kind of categorizing these. Um, and of course, there can be overlap between the two. The direct effects is that during wartime, liberties historically have been curtailed, whether it is travel, whether it is a, a freedom of association, economic freedom. Um, so we have something that just has been recently deployed or threatened to be deployed under both Trump and Biden, as well as presidents before the, De the Defense Production Act. The Defense Production Act was passed, I think, in 1950 as part of the uh, Korean War effort. And it basically allows the government to force private firms to do certain things in the name of the national interest. Uh, that affects economic freedom because government planning and intervention necessarily trumps and replaces private decision making. And so those are the d domestic effects and those those are, I mean the direct effects and those are just domestic of course internationally war making is a, a a pathway to violating the the freedoms and liberties and human rights of people abroad because of course as the saying goes you know all is fair in, in love and war so you know we got to break some eggs in order to to make the omelet kind of language or or or, or reasoning the the long term effects is that war making creates precedents that sustain for long periods of time, decades after they, they are first implemented, uh, uh, and are used in ways that never can be anticipated by those that initially uh, implement them. The Espionage Act being one example, of course, uh, uh, which was has been uh, uh, on the books, of course, for, for, for decades, uh, and uh, was used the most by the Obama administration. The Obama administration was the, the, the presidential administration that, that most leveraged the Espionage Act in the name of uh, kind of blocking leakages of information, uh, uh, members of the press getting access to that information, and so on, which was not the intention of the act in the first place. I was just going to add to that. We also uh, see the ways in which uh, the national states of emergency that happened after 9-11, those basically get renewed every year. You know, things like the Patriot Act, which I remember a lot of people uh, maybe not at first, but shortly thereafter, started criticizing that on both the left and the right, uh, that it was sort of potentially draconian. You know, those acts have been renewed over and over again. That's exactly right. So that happens legislatively. But the other thing that I think is really important is ideological, which is things become normalized. 
they become a normal part of life. Things that that prior would have been viewed as repugnant or obnoxious now become a normal part of life. And part of that is is just generational. So so to give an example, I can still remember what something like airport security looked like pre-9-11. My kids, who are 10 and 4 respectively, cannot. And they'll never know that. So so for them growing up, to the extent they pay attention to these things, being kids, that airport security is airport security. And so, you know, the idea of getting patted down, which imagine someone at airport security tried that pre-9-11 to, to, to a passenger, the reaction people would have had. Now it's, well, if I have nothing to hide, it's okay they do that. To my kids, that will always be like that. And so that's a normal part of life. That's part an expansion in government power, which might seem mundane to people, but you start taking these things across all the different margins on which they occur. And, and the relationship between the state and the citizen changes dramatically and becomes normalized and embedded. And I think that's the indirect, long and variable effect of war making, which is why people for centuries have been very concerned about war making and threats to liberties and freedoms. Could you speak a little bit about the origins of, I guess, what could ultimately be called the national security state, uh, the war state, or, you know, uh, put more bluntly, what you call the American empire? What, what are the origins of this? Uh, because I think a lot of us in my age group think of the war on terror as this big moment, but I think it, it could even be traced back further than that. Yeah. In the book, uh, in the opening chapter of the book, I try to provide a a kind of history, a brief history of it. Of course, people have written entire books on each of these periods, historians, so I don't do full justice to it. But, you know, the first thing I should just mention, the term American empire, of course, is controversial among people. Well, it's, is it an empire? Is it not? Um, and, uh, you know, historically, I think I think the United States is an empire. I think it's a unique empire. And, and historically, empires have been involved in acquiring geographic territory. Um, and uh, uh, the U.S. government, of course, did that in the early phases, which I'll discuss in a moment. But now it, it, it sets up, it broadcasts its power to control other states, other societies, and to make them client states. Uh, and so from that standpoint, I think the logic of what the US government does and the apparatus it has set up as you know as it self-proclaimed world's police uh, policemen the, the the source of order um the kind of logic you're either with us or against us that's what I'm getting at when I talk about the American empire so anyway in the book I break it into three phases and and this is my own kind of breakdown to categorize things so so phase 1 I talk about being um, you know, early America, so continental expansion. We're talking here early to mid 19th century. Uh, the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Florida Purchase, annexation of Texas, Oregon Treaty, those kind of things. Um, up through up through the middle of the the 1800s. Uh, phase two, uh, I trace in the book to the Spanish American War, uh, which was 1898. Uh, and and the reason I highlight that is it, it it is a key point of overseas imperialism, focus in the Western Hemisphere, but overseas. And of course, then in the early 1900s, you get the uh, Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, um, and uh, that kind of pushed the United States purview of of its power out beyond our our borders and said, look. Uh, uh, it's not just that America is going to protect the Americas from European intervention, 
but we're also we also have the right to intervene in those societies if there's disorder and chaos as determined by us. And so you begin to see kind of the origins of the 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 policing powers and the well the outward broadcast of power in the name of fixing and controlling things. And then the third phase, um, the way I break it down, uh, is the world wars. Uh, and especially in World War II, of course, you get the uh, uh, beginnings of this idea of, of the United States as a global hegemon, um, the idea of military primacy, uh, and that is reinforced throughout the Cold War uh, up to the present. Uh, and so that's kind of the broad pattern uh, patterns or, or, or evolution of empire. In terms of the definition or the contours of empire, I would highlight you know, a couple features of it. Um, one is a uh, imperial national security state, and that includes the executive branch and what people often call the, the deep state. So many historians have written on what, what they call the imperial presidency, which is that the executive branch through time has extended its, its power to uh, 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 kind of use the military might of America for uh, uh, various policy implementation and, purp and purposes around the world. The deep state kind of has a conspiracy theory type logic to it, but I view it very much in plain, plain logic and common sense. When, which when is, you say the deep yeah. state, do you mean, you know, I, when we get really past the conspiratorial usage of that term, to me, it just refers to the sort of uh, entrenched bureaucracy within, uh, you know, the beltway. So, uh, you know, a lot of people that are in the Beltway, they they don't just come and go whenever there's a new president. They stick around or they're in positions. And, you know, that seems to be the entrenched bureaucracy. To me, that's what the deep state really is. Exactly. Exactly. So it is it is the I view it as the network of bureaucrats associated with national security state, but also the private contractors that they partner with. So it's also that aspect. So they're not directly bureaucrats, but they have linkages to them. And there's a that, revolving door in a lot of ways. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's that back and forth movement um, uh, between the private and the public. And those features define it. And there's a wonderful book, by the way, for listeners who might be interested if, if, if you think the deep stake logic is kind of overblown, and it's called um, Top Secret America by two uh, journalists, uh, uh, Dana Priest and William Arkin. And, and what they tried to do is in, in the mid 2000s, they tried to look at who had security clearances in the, in the post 9-11 world. And, and they realized it was just out of control that, that even people in the national security state couldn't identify all the people that had security clearance access to, to various uh, national security uh, initiatives and activities. And they map all this out. It was a piece they did for the Washington Post and they published it as a book. And, and I, I think it's probably gotten worse since then. Um, and so you have that, you have uh, a permanent war complex. So you have a massive uh, uh, investment in military capabilities. This is one of the major shifts that happened after World War II, um, which was uh, after World War II, because the Cold War was really a battle against an ideology. There was no enemy you were fighting. It was communism. And so you couldn't just say, well, we're going to ramp up military spending, attack an enemy and defeat them. It was, we need to prepare for future wars and we can't stop. We need to continue. That's called the permanent war economy. Um, and so when I talk about the permanent war complex, that's what I'm talking about. And that's just a self-sustaining entity. The revolving door you refer to is part of it. But there's 
uh, major firms, the kind of the, the greatest hits of, of military contractors, which everyone knows, Lockheed, Raytheon, and so on, uh, that, that rely on government largesse. Uh, and then the other kind of aspects of it are, you know, U.S. bases around the world, um, arms sales. The U.S. government is the largest arms dealer in the world uh, and various geoeconomic policies, whether it be sanctions or aid um, and, and a host of other policies. And so you kind of those are the broad contours that delineate what I call the uh, American empire. And it's outward looking. It's outward looking. You know, all this falls under the, the purview of the language of defense. You know, in politics all the time, you know, language gets distorted. But people have to remember before it was called the Department of Defense, it was called the Department of War. And that's much more accurate. Defense implies a passive, you know, if we think back to the olden days, it was armor. You put armor on and that was defense against someone hitting you with a sword. Now defense has become offense. We need to proactively go abroad and defeat people in the name of defense. Another argument we often hear just beyond uh, the defense argument, and we saw that defense argument used with the Iraq war. I mean, I, I think characters like Dick Cheney have tried to deny it, but we have them on record saying things like, oh, there are operative ties between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Uh, and, and that just proved to be absolutely uh, hogwash, I would say. Uh, but we also have this other argument uh, that was made during the Iraq war by the sort of um, what's been called the compassionate conservatives uh, that would say, uh, you know, Saddam is a brutal dictator and we need to help the Iraqi people liberate themselves by overthrowing Saddam. We need a regime change. And, you know, I do think sometimes when discussing Iraq, we probably do lose sight of the fact that, yes, Saddam was not some good guy. Uh, however, you know, the reason we don't necessarily talk about that as much is because the topic isn't about whether Saddam is a good guy or not. The topic was, is this war going to achieve the ends we claim it will? And is it going to help people or hurt people in the long run? So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, where some people go wrong when they say, well, you know, look at this horrible dictator. We have to overthrow them. We need regime change. You know, that, I think that's rooted often in a heartfelt place, but it can lead to very bad outcomes. Certainly, certainly. And I think there's a couple issues with it. One is I think it's a very poor standard for even of itself, meaning that if it's a genuine concern for other human beings, it's a poor standard for, for determining where to intervene. Because when we look out into the world, we see humanitarian crises everywhere or, or in many places, I'd say, not everywhere is too strong. And so the problem is, is it becomes a very, I would say, cheap way of justifying intervention wherever you want it. And and you see this, you know, you see this now um, when people talk about Ukraine, they flip between uh, they flip between justifications. And there can be multiple justifications, of course. I don't want to deny that either. But uh, uh, you saw it with Gaddafi. Um, well, he's a brutal dictator, so we need to overthrow him, uh, which was true. He, he was a brutal dictator. Uh, but then where do we stop? So before you know it, you're taking over the whole world, which some people want the US government to do, by the way, in name of that. But the other thing I think is that it presumes the kind of the, the tacit presupposition, meaning the background assumption, is that you observe a bad and it presumes that the intervention is going to generate a preferable state of affairs, which is possible. I was going to say, whereas, you know, in, a, in Libya, for example, yes, I mean, this has reintroduced the sex slave trade into Libya. I mean, it's now a state of anarchy, essentially. I would say it's a complete filled state. And, you know, as bad as Gaddafi may have been, there was some level of stability. You know, women could go to college. And I'm not defending Gaddafi saying that, 
he was a dictator. At the same time, the outcome of creating a state of anarchy, you know, that's not a positive outcome either. And in some ways, it may be even worse. Yeah, exactly. When I when I give talks on this, I, I put these two New York he- uh, Times headlines up. One is right after the overthrow of Gaddafi, and it says, the Obama administration has you know demonstrated a new way to intervene. There's no boots on the ground. It's cheap. You just enforce the no-fly zone and overthrow the bad guy. And then not too long after, it's you know the chaos in Libya provides a safe haven for ISIS. Uh, and it's like, okay, come on. You you led. No one seems to have asked. And by the way, Obama ad- admitted this when 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 he talked about the greatest mistake of his presidency. He pointed to Libya. Uh, and uh, it, it seems like no one just said like, well, what happens after you overthrow a dictator? It's almost like people presume that, you know, well-functioning institutions are going to fall from on high. Uh, and so the lesson I think from that is that at a minimum, we should be extremely cautious because simply identifying a bad is not enough to justify an intervention because it can do good, but it also can do worse. And so we always need to weigh that and think about that. And it's hard because we live in a very complex world, um, but that's what we need to think about. But here's the thing. The other thing is, is I think that view is too outward focused. And what I mean by that is it, it looks outward and says bad stuff over there, over there, intervene to fix it. But what that neglects is kind of the low hanging fruit domestically that uh, policies that hurt people who are already suffering that the United States government could undertake if they truly cared about humanitarian causes. And so what are a couple of those? Well, one of them is uh, immigration restrictions. Uh, uh, by If you want to make people better off who are suffering, let them come here. Uh, but we block people from coming here. We let some people in, but it got worse under Trump, of course. And then there was COVID. But nonetheless, that's a low-hanging fruit. What else? Trade protectionism. In, in the poorest countries in the world, they tend to produce agriculture. But wealthy countries block many of them from trading. You have trade protection and agriculture in the United States. You have the common agricultural policy in the EU. What does it do? It protects domestic farmers by blocking out competition. Who's that competition? Some of the poorest people in the world. And so it's somewhat odd to impoverish them and then turn around and say, well, they're poor. We need to fix them. And so I understand there's other political issues in removing those policies, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't actually talk about the, the humanitarian consequences of keeping those domestic policies. So it's interesting. Uh, sometimes on this show, I bring up uh, the figure of Samantha Power and responsibility to protect doctrine. And I'm not a big fan of Samantha Power, but I understand why that argument is very appealing to people, right? We see, you know... Uh, just atrocities in places like Darfur or Rwanda. And I think people rightfully think, well, we can't just stand back. I guess the question I would have to you is, uh, when it comes to looking at the things happening abroad that are uh, very upsetting, I think, to people who care about humanitarian issues, is there another way that we can intervene? In, in the sense of, uh, is there are there other ways we can engage with the world other than military intervention? What What are some other possibilities for how we can deal with very real issues uh, that concern people when it comes to humanitarian crises? Sure. Um, it's a it's a big question. I, I share with you, by the way, that reasoning, which is I, I get why people would see these atrocities and say, well, we need to do something. Well, here's a couple of things. I, I mentioned a couple of them with immigration, trade, those type of things. But there's something else. 
I, I think oftentimes American policymakers are quite hypocritical because they use the logic of wanting to overthrow dictators to aid people that are suffering, but many of the policies they adopt do just the opposite. And so here's one way to do that. Don't support the most brutal dictators in the world, even if you can benefit in other margins from doing so. Don't give weapons to the most brutal regimes in the world, or maybe to anyone. Let's cut that back. But you say, well, no, because we need to have a balance of power around the world. Well, what happens when you inject weapons into a situation where you have a terrible government? What happens when you give aid to a government that is terrible? Do you think they're going to magically transform into do-gooders? It's going to lead to terrible outcomes. And so, again, that's kind of low-hanging fruit where you could prevent a lot of harm. But that doesn't happen. Uh, We see just the opposite. We see a ramping up of, of, of these very things, moves to entrench terrible governments, oftentimes to overthrow governments that are uh, uh, to varying degrees democratically elected uh, uh, in the name of putting in governments or supporting governments that are favorable to the United States for short-term gains. Can you give some uh, examples? Sure. Throughout Latin America, uh, Pakistan, Egypt, these are all countries that the U.S. government has supported in various ways. Uh, they've intervened in, in Venezuela uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and that doesn't mean to, 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 to highlight a point that, that you made, which is an important one. Pointing that out doesn't mean you're endorsing the status quo in that country. And, and this is something that I think is quite important to always point out. And you see it with Russia and Ukraine. You can be critical of one side or the other or both. You don't have to, you know, pointing out the the, the failures or the problems you have with one set of policies doesn't automatically mean you're endorsing the other. Uh, and so uh, uh, I, I, I always think that's quite important, even though it's common sense, because it, it, and, and it's weird. We have to state it now. Right. You have to say, like, if you if you highlight if, you, if you're critical of something like aid to Ukraine, you'd say, but I, I, I understand Putin's a bad guy because somehow it's taken as implicit support for the other side. Um, and so uh, to go back to your question, I am a proponent of any kind of move that frees people up, the ordinary people I'm talking about, not the not the political elite, uh, because my kind of normative position is one of individual dignity uh, and individual sovereignty, which I, I personally believe individuals are their own sovereigns. Uh, now, many, if not all, real world arrangements fail to live up to that ideal, meaning that arrangements that we observe in the, uh, in the world oftentimes violate that individual sovereignty. And so what I'm trying to think about are what moves can we make to free people up? And my own study of these issues has led me to believe that U.S. interventions in the name of doing good, the responsibility to protect, or if it's the United Nations even, um, which is supposed to be carrying that out, uh, the the responsibility to protect, I mean, uh, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes, and I would say more often than not, leads to the opposite. Uh, and so there's, you know, the, the the responsibility part is a moral argument. I have a duty to assist. The the key then is, do we have the ability to do it? That's a separate question, but an important one. So the the second part of my question though there was, what ways can we engage in the world? Because I don't think I, I think most people don't want to be. I, I hesitate to use this term because I think it's often used as a a slur, but I don't think people want America to be an isolationist country that doesn't, you know, uh, when we hear isolationist, we think of a country that doesn't engage with the world. I think that people want us to engage with the world, but there's other ways we can do that other than war, right? 
yes, there's there's uh, political ways. The political ways are diplomacy and acquiescence. Uh, and so, you know, w- one of the the ways that many, if not most, policymakers in the United States talk about the world, and a lot of this comes down to how you frame your your model of the world. And all of us have to have some model of the world. They frame it as a negative sum game. So the U.S. only wins if China loses. If China wins, somehow America loses. So it's like a game of musical chairs where there's a chair taken away. I just wanted to add to that. We're seeing that right now, right, with the uh, China mediating between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And you have a lot of people saying, well, you know, a lot of people that are interested in the area of Middle East studies saying, you know, this could bring some level of stability to the region. You know, this could lead to, you know, this, say, the end of this horrible crisis in Yemen, or at least the beginning of the end of it. Um, But, you know, you hear a lot of voices in the U.S. saying, this is terrible. We can't let this happen. This is bad for U.S. interests. Um, I, I just wanted to add that in there. No, that's a that's a wonderful. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a wonderful example of this logic in real time, because rather this is and this is also why I don't view claims about humanitarianism or peace when people say that's why they intervene, because we have contradictory evidence of them pushing back against that when it doesn't fit with they their narrative and and their goals, uh, and so. The, the problem is when you elevate this zero uh, negative sum view of the world, it automatically leads to conflict because anything the other party does, who's ever on the other side, it's usually parties plural, as the example you just gave illustrates, it's viewed as a bad, it harms you. That's one model of the world. An alternative model of the world is, look, uh, I don't have to agree with everything another party does, but in a world where I need to coexist with them... I need to tolerate it. So I need to figure out how to live with them and coexist. And that's one of compromise. That's one of discussion. That's one of acquiescence. Uh, and uh, I, I fear that oftentimes that is pushed by the wayside for political purposes, because it's 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 an easy talking point to say, well, Chris Coyne and his ilk is weak on national security. See, if it was up to him, he would just stand there while China ran over us and they would take over the country or the world, or regions of the world. Uh, But I think that misses the possibility and capability of human beings. So again, I I don't like to categorize people. I know we live in a world of nation states, but I think one of the great mistakes we make is categorizing millions upon millions of people based on where they live and their governments. And that somehow reflects on all those people as an aggregated whole. The way I view it is that peace is possible. And how do I know that peace is possible? Because I observe it every day of my life. And we take that for granted, which is why at the end of the book, I, and I think this is always a good uh, uh, kind of thought experiment that I tell my students for economic issues. And I think this is one of the benefits of coming at this as an economist, which is we focus on what's called methodological individualism. People act. I see peace all around me in all different settings because I see people, ordinary people doing it. And that means it's possible regardless of whether you're American, Mexican, Chinese, or anything else for that matter. So one thing I wanted to get at, you mentioned um, a lot of people right now are talking about Ukraine. Should we send aid to Ukraine? Should we not? And I, I don't want to get into that issue. I thought it was interesting that one of the blurbs in your book uh, came from uh, Joe uh, Cianzino, uh, who he's in favor of uh, aid to Ukraine. Um, but I think he's still would tell us to look back at the war on terror and not let things get to our head in the future and repeat those mistakes. And I think that's really important that we um, 
sort of hammer down on that because regardless of our views on Ukraine, whether we believe in more aid or the people who believe, you know, we should focus on other issues or they, they're against uh, aid, I think we should all keep in mind that regardless of our view in Ukraine, in the long run, we have to consider, uh, you know, ways to not repeat the mistakes of the war on terror era. So could you speak to that a little bit? Because I think some people are losing sight of that. I fear that we're going to forget the lessons of the Bush and Obama years. Yeah, and I, I, you can even go back further, pre, pre-9-11 and, and the lessons from from you know Cold War and prior to that. And, and I think part of that is that, again, it's this negative sum view of the world. And so it's it's the only way to win. And you even hear policymakers slip and say this sometimes is, well, you need regime change in Russia uh, or uh, you need to defeat outright defeat of Russia is the only way to do it. And that might be true, by the way. That's one possibility, but it's not the only one. Uh, and, and, and again, what we need to think about is the feasibility of that. And so one of the the reasons, you know, of course, in the world now, people want to talk about Ukraine. They want to talk about Russia, but they oftentimes like want quick policy fixes, like tell me what you think. And they want very give me a list of five things and give me the five reasons why it happened as if the world is this neat list of things with neat solutions. And I think that's part of the point I'm trying to get at in the book is the world is a really complex and messy place. And and pointing that out leaves a lot of questions unanswered, but I think that's the way the world is. If anything, it points out how little control we have over it. And our tendency is to think that someone controls everything. We hear this, see this with the economy, the Fed controls the economy. No, it doesn't. It intervenes upon the economy, but there's lots of things it can't control because the economy can't be controlled. It's not an object of design. The world, the global order, it's not a IKEA bookshelf. It's not a list of instructions that you follow the instructions and all of a sudden you have a bookshelf at the end. That's an engineering problem. And I think the biggest mistake people make, and you saw this with Iraq and Afghanistan, is they treat the world like an engineering problem. We can fix these countries. We can fix the world. And if you go and look at the documents about Afghanistan and Iraq, well, how did they treat it? Like an engineering problem. What was the idea of government in a box? You come in with the military, kill the bad guys. You come in with the humanitarians, you give aid to people that were harmed. You come in with the experts and you create development and government. And then voila, like it's a linear steps of you just do A, B, and C. That's not how the world is. And so that's one of the sets of mistakes. The other mistake I'll say is this, without any clear discussion of, of what the end goal is, and it's unclear what the end goal is right now. There's, we, it's unclear to me, at least. I'm talking about Ukraine and, and Russia. I, th- I think that's true, though, even with like Afghanistan and Iraq, we didn't really have you know, a detailed plan for how you know, this would end. Yeah. Right. Well, it's mo- that, that's part of the trickery, I would say, that takes place in politics is it's open-ended because then you can claim whatever you want. I mean, even 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 in Afghanistan, remember, we want to get al-Qaeda and then it's it's shifting grounds. Well, now we got to stay because of development and humanitarianism. And then there was arguments against leaving because, well, women have certain benefits now they didn't before. And if we leave, they'll lose those. And so it's a never-ending stream of, 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 of proposed ends. Uh, and risks of of leaving. And and the point I'm trying to make is this, because you asked about repeating the 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 mistakes. One of the mistakes, I think, is getting bogged down and not having a clear end game to get out because once 
you get involved with wars. It's not obviously impossible to get out. It happens all the time and it's happened historically, but it's really hard. It's really hard to get out. And we should really be cognizant of that because we run the risk of not just getting bogged down, but having kind of this self-extending war where it it kind of spills into other things, which is the other thing we observe with wars. They they that you get mission creep or imperial overreach. Uh, and so that's something we need to be quite careful about. It's never a clean and linear process. And in politics in general, irregardless of the political party in charge, it's always harder and more difficult than what they say, because their incentive is to make it sound like we can do this. I can do this. I have control. Don't worry. Uh, but that's rarely the case when you actually look at the kind of underlying realities of what's going on. Yeah. One of my big concerns, too, it's just from a very pragmatic perspective. I think that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars killed a lot of U.S. credibility in the world. And now I think some of that credibility has really been gained back in some ways because people are worried about Russia. But, you know, once you get that credibility back, it can be fumbled again through acts of hubris. And I think uh, one of my big concerns is that you know, we could end up just repeating uh, the same things we did in the past because we're overconfident now that, oh, we we won't do that again. You know, and it seems like we repeat history over and over. Yeah, certainly. And I think part of that is the incentives in government, which is why I think that, you know, it's the incentives people face. It's the incentives that are created by the nature of the system. And I would argue by having a apparatus that is imperial in nature. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, look, when you have an apparatus whose very purpose is to create order, and, and I, I, I use that term loosely because I don't think it creates order. I think it creates disorder. But when you believe that, you're going to use it. Because if your model of the world is one of chaos, is one of war against, uh, of all against all, and you think you are kind of the savior of the world, the, the glue holding it together, well, of course, you're going to be the one then that looks out into the world and says, well, we need to do this, that, and the other thing. And then once you get bogged down in that, it's exactly the kind of dynamics that you're talking about. And so to get out of that, uh, one is to say, well, we just need them to do less. That's kind of the more restrained view. Uh, and that's certainly, in, in my view, preferable to the status quo. But I also think it runs into problems in terms of missing out on the nature of the system itself. Um, and that requires a rethinking of how we engage people. And this is what you were getting at. You know, we talked a little about economics and economic interactions, political interactions, uh, but just social interactions, too. Uh, again, I, I think we come back to the view, the way I view the world is human beings that reside in different geographic spaces. It's not that conflict doesn't happen. Conflict is a ubiquitous part of the human condition. All of us have conflicts on a daily basis. The, the th interesting thing is that uh, many of us don't resort to violence to resolve them. Uh, we navigate conflicts among family, friends, coworkers, strangers, domestic, international interactions, and we resolve them peacefully. Some I was going to say, we, yeah, don't, please. we don't live in a world where everything is like a zero-sum game, like where we're in you know, a conflict and one side has to be utterly destroyed in order for victory to be uh, you know, uh, achieved, right? <laughs> No, that's exactly right. And that's the framing. And 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 of course you say that and it's it should be common sense. It's like, yes, I walk around the world and I I live this. But for some reason, when it comes to international relations, that's pushed by the wayside. Part of it again, I think, is it's it's very easy political talking points. One way for po the politicians, irregardless of political party and ideology, when they're in power, one way that they gain power over people is to have a uh, uh, 
uh, fear of enemies around every corner. And that historically has been the case. Fear is the foundation of government power and privilege. Uh, and, and that's why I think, again, going back to where we started earlier, irregardless of where you fall ideologically, there's something to be found and something to worry about in this discussion of empire. So this is going to get into an interesting area. Uh, we've talked about the left and the right. Let's talk a little bit about the center. Why should the center be worried about the worst state? And I think there are good reasons they should be. Uh, you know, if you're someone that's a centrist who is concerned with you know, declining trust, for instance, in American institutions, I think you should be concerned about the overreach of the war state because, you know, when we go into wars that are unwinnable or turn into a quagmire or cause more harm than good, it ends up killing the credibility of those institutions. Uh, do you think centrists should be concerned about that? Certainly. And I, so I think there's the trust issue, but I also think there's the general stability issue, which, and here's what I mean by that. I think what happens is that war making leads to all the things we've been talking about. It leads to expansions in, in, in political power and so loss of private or civil liberties and freedoms. It leads to fiscal issues. Um, and it leads to when there's failures, uh, backlashes domestically and internationally. And that opens the door to extreme uh, kind of ideologies on either side. So either far right or far, far left, having an additional kind of voice and the ability to get support precisely because of the trust issue. You're say, people say, well, the status quo failed. So now we need something more extreme. And where that falls, and if it's successful, meaning kind of the, the far left or the far right, uh, is 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 an open question and it's context specific. But I think we saw some of this during the Trump kind of period where you had a, a set of voices that is like, okay, the and this is, you know, Trump, of course, pushed back on a lot of the wars rhetorically. Again, I don't, I'm not so, quite so sure he was actually anti-war in the way I would view or define anti-war, but he used the rhetoric. But his rhetoric was kind of this negative sumness we've been talking about, but also economic nationalism. Uh, uh, and, and that's the whole make America, America great again. America, the nation, needs to be made great. And part of the way we do that is by pushing back against foreigners. And that leads to a whole host of issues that I find quite worrying. Um, things, uh, not just engaging with people, but also the rhetoric, which very quickly kind of collapses into uh, a very racist uh, uh, rhetoric because that's an easy way to, to, to divide people and to categorize people. There's us versus them. And so those are some of the reasons, and there, there might be others as well, that those who are more uh, centrist in their in their political leanings might want to think about some of these issues and be concerned about them. Yeah, I was going to say too. I I think when it comes to this issue of um, entangling alliances, which we sort of talked about that with regards to like U.S. support of dictatorships. So, for instance, uh, when the U.S. supports or allies with a regime like, say, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, in the eyes of the rest of the world or countries affected by Saudi Arabia. It, it it makes us seem like an enemy uh, to the countries that are not getting along with Saudi Arabia. Do you think that our foreign policy choices can affect our relationships to specific nation states in very negative ways? Oh, certainly. And I think there's these image effects and spillover effects, which I talk about in the book. You know, one of, one of the themes of the book is that the idea of a liberal empire, I'm using liberal in the classical sense of the term here, not in the, in the contemporary, you know, liberal Democrat sense is a misnomer because you can't have a liberal empire because it's inherently illiberal. And one of the things it does is because it relies on force, 
because it relies on uh, harming other individuals in in the name of some greater good, which is collectivism, of course, uh, what I would consider a, a very vulgar form of collectivism. It also leads to a backlash against liberal values. And why does it lead to a backlash? For the exact reason you just highlighted, the U.S. government gives, you know, policymakers give all these speeches and use all this rhetoric about human rights and human dignity and, and humanitarian uh, kind of efforts. And they partner- Autocracy versus democracy. Yes, yeah. right. That very simple dichotomy, right? And then, but then they take steps, which are obvious to everyone, uh, as the example you just gave, the very good example uh, of the opposite. And so that turns uh, America into an enemy by association for for some, but it also just leads to a backlash in the ideas. You know, I'm a very big fan of markets, uh, of economic trading, markets, capitalism, if you want to call it that. But one of the things that America, the American government, has done is undermine those very things through its imperialism. And so many people around the world, rightly so, associate American capitalism with imperialism, because they say, well, you know, you get businesses that set up shop, and then the US government intervenes because of course, now that's in our interest, it's the national interest to intervene to protect those companies and their their property and their profits. I well, was gonna you... say, we're, we're seeing this right now in a way with the polling data that's showing that, you know, we used to say a year ago, oh, all the world is behind us on the Ukraine issue, but we're finding now there's global South countries that are very skeptical of the US. Exactly, exactly. And I so I think, that I, again, I think the political rhetoric severely overstated the global support of that effort. Um, but also it leads to a backlash against economics, uh, the kind of economics that at least policymakers in America talk about. And that's just the economic margin. I think in general, kind of the political, the social values. And so those are the kind of things I worry about, that you don't just get a backlash in terms of, well, the US government's partnering with the Saudi government, and so they're our enemy. That's part of it, and that's important. But also, it leads to a broader backlash against the very values that the American government purports to uphold. So first, uh, we briefly sort of mentioned Latin America and US interventions in Latin America. One thing I'm interested in always talking with my guests who come from the sort of libertarian side of things, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about immigration in the U.S., whether you're a supporter or whether you're maybe on the Trump side where you're saying we need more restrictions, more restrictions. But the thing is, I think there's a connection between U.S. foreign policy and immigration into the U.S. I think oftentimes our U.S. policies in Latin America lead to a massive influx of immigration because we uh, can cause massive harm to these countries. And then, of course, you know, uh, you're going to get immigration out of that, people trying to escape and get into the U.S. Could you speak to that issue or do you have any thoughts on that? Certainly. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right. I think there and I, I don't know. The, the thing I can speak to is, is a magnitude of that, which I think is quite hard to isolate, meaning, meaning what percentage or, or what is the size of people trying to come to America that is a result of foreign interventions? But certainly, uh, I think that if you create chaos in other countries, uh, that it is going to put pressure on people to want to move because, they, of course, they're human beings. They want to protect themselves and their families, their kids, just like all of us do that live here. Uh, and uh, so what's the cause of the chaos? 
Uh, well, there's many, of course. And again, I don't, I don't want to, you know, one thing I always try to be careful about because I, I think people view some of the things I say as implying it. I don't think all the world's ills are America's fault. I don't think everything that goes wrong, not just in Latin America, but everywhere is the United U S government's fault. Uh, but I think a lot of things are, and I, I think we, we neglect that at, at our own peril. Uh, for understanding the world, but also as 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 myself, a U.S. citizen. In any case, uh, what happens is it's not just uh, 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 kind of interventions that cause that, but policies too. The U.S. government, economically, uh, the U.S. government through the war on drugs, for instance, intervenes in countries throughout Latin America and has been for 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 decades. By the way, this isn't like a recent phenomena. Uh, Walter Lefebvre, the, the historian, talks about what he calls inevitable revolutions in Latin America. I talk about this a little bit in the book. And those in inevitable revolutions, in his view, are like, look, the U.S. government intervened in Latin America so much that they they kind of uh, created a set of expectations where the way you get political change is through revolution, uh, is through overthrowing the people in power. Uh, and if you can kind of cozy up to the American government, you can get resources, intelligence, and so on to do that. And so that shifts the nature of how political interactions take place. It, it influences political institutions and so on. But also for those who suffer under those institutions, it push once they want to leave. And so that puts pressure on kind of the the movements into the United States, as you were pointing out. Uh, and so certainly, I think there's a connection there that can be drawn. And I think it's an underappreciated one. As a libertarian, um, when we talk about countries like, say, Cuba or Venezuela, what's your perspective on the way in which the U.S. approaches relations to those countries? Like, you know, I know you're not a socialist, so obviously you're not supportive of socialism. But is there a way that, you know, the U.S. can coexist with countries that are under a socialist regime at this point? Certainly. So let me just say a couple of things. First of all, to the extent I'm a libertarian, I'm a small L libertarian. So I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party proper. Um, and the way I view libertarianism, so I, I used the term liberal earlier, is in the classical sense. So like this is going back to John Locke in the 1600s. So it's things like, you know, individual sovereignty and freedom, human dignity, freedom of association, um, cosmopolitan type view, so a citizen of the world type view. That's my own personal view on these things. So where do I view those uh, on the on the kind of societies, whether it's those specific ones or others? I'm a big live and let live person. And so I am not myself a socialist, but I also think that if other people want to live under a socialist or whatever regime they want to live under or whatever community they want to live in, more power to them. Who am I to tell them otherwise? And so in in some sense, my worldview is one that requires a very limited uh, kind of set of, of shared values, which is toleration. Now, that can be hard to get in some cases, but that's what I require, I, I, people tolerating others. And so I, I would not, I am not a fan of sanctions. I'm not a fan of military intervention. I am a, a fan of trying to figure out ways to coexist with other human beings, whether domestically or internationally, given where they are as human beings. And given their preferences, and can you find space to coexist and to come to some kind of agreement? Not on everything. And again, that doesn't mean toler toleration does not mean acceptance. It doesn't. I don't have to agree with everything they do, but I, I I try to recognize that I need to coexist with people or communities. And can we do that? And I think we can if we want to. 
I was going to add to that. It's interesting you brought up sanctions because I was thinking recently about the uh, the earthquakes that affected Syria. Uh, you know, and there was talk of maybe we should lift the sanctions. And I'm seeing articles saying, no, we can't lift the sanctions. And it's like, well, this is a humanitarian crisis. Uh, we claim to be, you know, wanting to help people out of a humanitarian crisis, but we can't lift the sanctions even a little bit. You know, it's it's it becomes there's a lot of paradoxes that exist with all these issues. Yeah. I mean, paradox is a very charitable way of putting it. I I think it's it's bordering on absurd and kind of insulting to one's intelligence for, for exactly the reason that we've talked about, which is on the one hand, you have people saying, well, it's it, we we need to care about the the those who are suffering in humanitarian crises. But you have again very low hanging fruit that is obviously harming those people, and sanctions is one of them. And then you get the earthquakes on top of it, as you rightfully pointed out. And it's just I'm going to dig in my heels. I refuse to back off. I mean, imagine that mindset, and then extrapolate that mindset into other policies. And what do you expect to happen? And this is part of my skepticism of U.S. foreign policy. It's it's right before our eyes, uh, and so. Uh, again, I, I'm a big live and let live. I, I have no the world I envision is one where if people want to live on a commune uh, or whatever kind of lifestyle they want to live, uh, more power to them. Uh, uh, and it's not my job, or I don't think anyone else's job to impose things upon them. It's again, not your job to police them. No, no, and or tell them how to live, and so that puts a limit on expertise, which I think is is a, a, a severely uh, abused term, and certainly in the foreign policy space, where you say, "Well, the experts know better." Uh, experts know certain things, but there's lots of things they don't know, and one of the great risks of turning to experts is that you shut off discussion, but also you give them a lot of power over other human beings domestically and internationally. And so, for that reason, I'm I'm quite skeptical of of highly centralized. Uh, expertise, certainly in the name of telling other people how to live. Yeah, I would just add to that that, you know, experts usually have very specialized knowledge and they may have blind spots in other areas uh, within that specialized knowledge. I, I mean, it gets very complicated. Uh, so I, I think sometimes uh, people who are very specialized in knowledge can miss other aspects of an issue. Uh, the, the last thing I want to touch upon, and I think it's a very important part of your book, is one of the last chapters on Afghanistan and the war on drugs. Can you give an overview of that chapter of the book? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think the the war on drugs in Afghanistan perfectly encapsulates many of the things we've been talking about, but is a really good reason for skepticism of U.S. foreign intervention. And so the U.S. government, according to the estimates we have, spent about $9 billion um, trying to combat um, opium production in uh, a poppy production uh, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan is the world, world's largest source of poppy, um, which is used in the production of heroin, among among other drugs. Uh, and um, the U.S. government, so I said $9 billion, brought over members of the DA, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency and other supposed experts, going back to what we were just talking about, in order to, to, to combat this. And they were the U.S. government was extremely schizophrenic in the way that they approached the war on drugs. And so at first... They uh, kind of deferred to the national government, but worked with them to eradicate. Then they went full on eradication where they were literally going around the country and burning crops and destroying crops. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And then they shifted to a more hands-off policy. Uh, and then they shifted to what was called um, other livelihoods, this effort to kind of create development. And here's why this was problematic. Number one, it failed terribly. Let's just, I should mention that. If you look at the land under cultivation, so that's how they measure this, the, the land being cultivated, 
it is it, it it's higher than when the United States government began its intervention. And so what I mean by that is the US government would have been better off under the status quo and simply either not spending the money or burning it if if the goal was to stop the spread of 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 poppy production. But what the US government did as, as kind of the the perverse consequences of all this was going back to what we talked about just a few moments ago, turning people against you, it turned ordinary Afghan citizens against the United States. Why? Well, think about it from their perspective. They're relatively poor by world standards, and many of them depend on uh, poppy farming to feed themselves and their families. And then you have occupiers coming in who are supposedly there to bring them freedom and to liberate them, literally destroying their livelihood, literally burning it. And so what's the response? Of course, they're going to hate America. They're going to hate the American government, and they're going to partner with the Taliban, which is what they did. So the Taliban was able to kind of cartelize, to 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 create a cartel, to strengthen its cartel position in the drug trade by protecting the farmers from the American occupiers who were there supposedly to free them, but were actually viewed as the enemy. Uh, on top of that, uh, uh, what happened is it led to uh, significant increases in violence. Uh, uh, because m much of it, which fell either on ordinary people or on American soldiers or on, or on, or on allied troops, uh, because like the war on drugs in general, when you make something illegal, uh, you criminalize it and you also attach significant profits to it, which leads to increases in violence. That's just a, a, a historical fact when you make things illegal. And, and again, the war on drugs more broadly is an example of this. And so what happened is you got a, a not just a waste of $9 billion dollars, but a situation where you actually increase the amount of land under cultivation, it led to the criminalization of ordinary life. It led to a backlash of ordinary citizens in Afghanistan against America and everything America stands for. And it led to the strengthening of the Taliban. And uh, at the end, the U.S. government was trying, as I said, they, they, were, they shifted to this alternative livelihoods policy. And they were trying to create development to bid people away from being farmers. And this failed miserably. Uh, and so the US for a left you and, said it drove uh, people away uh, from what? It drove people away from uh, supporting the uh, American, uh, any hope of them supporting American goals uh, and into the hands of the Taliban uh, because uh, the Taliban was their protectorate. Uh, but also their purchaser. They, Taliban, the Taliban actually has a very complex organizational structure for running the drug trade. Uh, and so it's kind of the this kind of one-stop shop for the supply chain, for, for moving from farm to farming all the way to the supply on the other side. And uh, uh, that is how people ended up making their living uh, in the face of the U.S. occupation. That's continued today. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about this, and I'm, I'm sorry for keeping you on so long, but um, you also have a chapter, uh, it's it's the follow-up to the Afghan um, drug war chapter uh, in your sort of section on illustrating the bads of, you know, American U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you have a chapter on drone warfare, and I remember growing up, the big argument we heard in favor of drone warfare was, oh, this is a kinder, gentler way of dealing with insurgents. We can use precision. You take a very different tact. You refer to the use of drones as mechanized terror. Uh, and I agree with that sentiment, but uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about why drone warfare isn't this, you know, thing that a lot of the people arguing for it uh, claim it is. And, and yeah. those are very strong words, by the way, mechanized terror. So I wanted to hone in on that. 
Sure, sure. Well, thank you for bringing it up. So first of all, I, I should mention that drones have a long history, but it was during the war on terror and Bush, the Bush administration too, but really under the Obama administration when drones came into their own as an offensive tool. And the argument was exactly the one you raised or the way you put it, which was, was spot on, that drones are number one, more accurate than, than alternatives uh, in terms of only harming or, or more likely to only harm the target and not innocent people. Uh, and that it, it it insulated American troops from harm. Uh, and so that sounds like a great thing, right? You only kill the bad guys and you you insulate American troops. Well, in reality, that's neither of those things are are, are necessarily true. Uh, there's a significant amount of what's what the US government calls collateral damage, which is really killing innocent people or maiming them. Uh, because of course, uh, uh, people that are targets end up living in communities, uh, and and people are hurt are, are hurt as as kind of spillover. But on top of that, uh, the use of drones relies on intelligence, and oftentimes that intelligence is imperfect. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is what's called signature strikes, and signature strikes are based on signature behaviors of supposed terrorists. And so one of those signatures, for instance, is traveling in a caravan. And so what they'll do is they'll look down um, from the from from above and they'll see someone travel or, or or a series of cars traveling in a caravan and that's a signature. So then they strike that caravan. Well, we have examples of uh, innocent people being slaughtered. What were they doing? Going to a wedding or a funeral. And what do wedding and funeral parties do? They often drive in a caravan. But there's a broader point that I bring up in the book, and this is the mechanized terror point, which is that. Drones were adopted in order to, as part of the war on terror to annihilate terrorism, but this only looks at it from the perspective of the U.S. So imagine, and I have quotes in the book of people that lived under drones talking about this, imagine a drone flying above. And sometimes you can hear them, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're just living your life and all of a sudden an explosion happens because the, the drones, uh, the, 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 the pilots launch an attack. And what does that do? for people that live in societies where drones are used. It terrorizes them. I'm talking about ordinary people. Uh, and as a thought experiment, I want you just to think about yourself or your family. And imagine a foreign government was flying aircraft over your airspace, and then at random times, they launched an attack and killed people. And sometimes bad people, however that's defined, died, but so did children, so did innocent people. What would you think of that government and how would you feel on a daily basis? And so I have these quotes from interviews with children and parents who talk about how it affected their life. Basic things, going outside to play, going to school, just the things that we who, who are fortunate enough to live in a society where we have certain freedoms take for granted. They did not get those things. And not that they just not get them, the US government by carrying out its drone program actually undermines those things and has lasting psychological effects on those very people, again, that they purport to want to free from terrorists and the terrorist threat. And so that's what I mean when I talk about mechanized terrorism. It is the creation of a terrorist uh, of terrorism because the drones kind of hover above, they strike from out of the blue, they kill innocent people. Uh, and uh, uh, they, you know, one of the benefits of drones is they can stay in the air for a really long time, but that's one of the costs too from those that have to live under them. Yeah, I was going to say it's very similar to a point that I've heard uh, Noam Chomsky make, who is definitely not uh, a libertarian. He's a guy on the left, as everyone knows. But I, I remember Chomsky would say, you know, uh, we'll look at uh, incidents done to us like 9-11 as terrorism, um, 
But then when we're attacking people with drones, we never consider how the people that are affected by those drones would conceive of that as a form of U.S. state-sanctioned terrorism against them. So, th I mean, it's interesting because you're – I think there's points of agreement between the left and the right that we can find when talking about these issues. Oh, certainly. Certainly. That, that's what I think. I tried to write the book that way as a very – an invitation to reconsider these issues from people from across the ideological spectrum. But I think having that conversation is crucial precisely for the point you raised, that there's points of emphasis and agreement uh, across the ideological spectrum. Because I think people, irregardless of their ideological views, for the most part, kind of share the same common values and have many of the same common concerns. How they want yeah, to we often think that uh, we have, I, I, I put it this way. I think we often have the same concerns, but we often believe that there's different ways to achieve them. So a socialist yes. has a different, someone who writes for Jacobin, has a different idea for how to achieve the ends of peace, stability, et cetera, than maybe someone on the libertarian side and vice versa. Yes, certainly, certainly. And But then there's also points of agreement, I think, on those means. So to the extent people think that war making is at odds with their intended kind of ends or goals, then there's that room for agreement too. And, and that's where I found have found a lot of interesting conversation with people that are to varying degrees on the left um, and on the right, I should say, um, is is because of those con shared concerns about the perverse consequences of, of war making, uh, and when war making is kind of elevated as as a necessity for world peace and stability, and so that gives me hope um, um, for kind of a broader shared kind of coalition's the wrong word, but group of of, of thinkers and intellectuals that are interested in these issues. Well, Christopher J. Coin, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone should get the book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy the Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace. Thank you again, Christopher J. Coyne. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Um, I have a website, ccoyne, C-C-O-Y-N-E.com, which is all my uh, academic research and, and all my information is there. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christopher J. Coyne, author of In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire, and The Paths to Peace. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that... Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.